Chapter 10, verse 32, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those who were so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. You have need for endurance, or maybe your translation says for patience, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. He quotes now from Habakkuk chapter 2. Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. Now if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. He was born contrary to the laws of nature. He lived in poverty, was reared in obscurity, and only once crossed the border of the land in which he was born, and that in his childhood. He had no wealth or influence, and neither training nor education in the world's schools. His relatives were inconspicuous and uninfluential. In infancy, he startled a king. In boyhood, he puzzled the learned doctors. In manhood, he ruled the course of nature. He walked upon the billows and hushed the sea to sleep. He healed the multitudes without medicine and made no charge for his services. He never wrote a book, and yet all the libraries of the world could not hold the books about him. He never wrote a song, and yet he has furnished the theme for more songs than all songwriters together. He never founded a college, and yet all the schools together cannot boast of as many students as he has. He never practiced medicine, and yet... He has healed more broken hearts than all the doctors who heal broken bodies. This Jesus Christ is the star of astronomy. He's the rock of geology. He's the lion and the lamb of zoology. He's the harmonizer of all discords and the healer of all diseases. Throughout history, men have come and gone, yet he lives on. Herod could not kill him. Satan could not seduce him. Death could not destroy him, and the grave could not hold him. Can't put it any better than John MacArthur did with that summary. We have discovered over our 29 years of reading the Word together, it, the entire Bible is one developing story. It is the narrative of God's redemptive plan and purpose, with the central theme being one person, that is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is a single coherent story that leads to a cliffhanger. There has to be a resolution. And the resolution to this cliffhanger is the person of Jesus of Nazareth, who is none other than the eternal Son of God. Last summer when we began studying through the book of Hebrews, I, I said to Linda, I said, I, somehow I have, a, I have a strange sense that this might be my swan song book for preaching at faith, and I wasn't aware of what the Lord was stirring in my heart or the changes that were coming, but I love this book because it takes 
our, our love for the Old Testament, and it takes the Gospels, and it takes the Epistles, and in wraps it all together in one concise package. If you're going to understand the narrative of redemption from the Scripture, you've got to immerse your mind and heart in the book of Hebrews. So today we open the final section of the book. Here in 13 chapters, or 303 verses, the whole story of redemption comes together with its key theme being the superior greatness of Jesus Christ. Greatness compared to all that has come before him. He will be declared to be God's final and fully sufficient word. In some ways, it is an epistle, a letter, but almost realistically, it is a sermon. It is a word of encouragement with woven-in warnings to a people who have lost the initial joy and confidence of their salvation and in their discouragement are seeking an exit ramp from the faith. With pastoral passion, shepherding watchfulness, the apostle urgently, passionately appeals to them, just hold on. To those who are ready to give up, cash it in, finding it hard and costly to endure, encouragement comes to those who just want to quit. Now the theme, as you saw, we asked the question, is he enough? And the theme behind that is, that he is better than. You'll find that, and I hope that you mark your Bible up as you study. I was up early this morning trying to read mine and realized that uh, next time I preach Hebrews, I'm going to have to buy a new Bible because I've got so many notes in there, I almost can't read the text. But over and over, he says he is better than. Just a summary. He is a better word. Starts with the prophets. It, it, he has spoken in many ways in times past, but now he has spoken with finality, through his son. He is a better prophet. He is a better messenger than the angels. The the angels are messengers sent from God to minister to the needs of men, and yet Christ is greater than the angels. He is better deliverer than Moses, though Moses was used of God to lead them out of the land of captivity in Egypt across the Red Sea and served them for 40 years in the wilderness. This Lord Jesus is a greater deliverer than Moses. He is a greater leader than Joshua, even though Joshua led the children of Israel across the flooded Jordan River, and in 25 years they settled in the land. Joshua never brought them lasting rest, and yet this Christ gives us eternal rest. He's a better priest than Aaron who had to offer personal sacrifices to go through the veil and into the presence of a holy God, and yet Christ is God, and He stands in the presence of His Father without any guilt or shame. He brings a better understanding. He's a better priest and king than Melchizedek. He he brings a better covenant. He enters into a better sanctuary. He, He provides for us a better sacrifice. He offers us a better possession. Ultimately, when we get to chapter 11, he's going to say that you have waiting for you a better country. Bottom line, he gives us a better promise. Thirteen times as you're reading through the 13 chapters, he said, Jesus is better. Now the first readers were Hebrews. That's where it gets its title. They were Jewish people who had come to understand that the Old Testament portraits, promises, and principles that were made are fulfilled in one Lord Jesus Christ. And so they have come to follow Christ as the Messiah of promise. 
So he writes specifically, never mentions Gentiles here, even though it applies to us and it speaks to us. But 27 Old Testament passages are included, 38 Old Testament quotations, and 55 Old Testament allusions. It is saturated with Old Testament truth. As he writes, he has, I think, three target groups in mind. And so this would speak perhaps to everyone that is here on some level. The first, and obviously the primary target group, are true Hebrew believers. They, they have embraced Christ as their Savior, as the Messiah. But the strain of persecution and affliction is, is beginning to, to, to tug at their hearts. They're, they're beginning to doubt the sufficiency of Christ. They're, they're, they're wondering, is there an exit ramp? Is there a way out? You see, Judaism was protected under Roman law. They had the freedom to practice the religion of Judaism. Christianity was not, and they were paying a horrible price for their following Christ. They, some of them were flirting with going back to a ritualistic, ceremonial, legalistic Christianity, because then if they just went back to the way they used to do things, they would be less obvious, less marked, and perhaps their family would embrace them again, and perhaps the government would leave them alone. They needed a word of reassurance. Some of you, that you not maybe Jewish by ancestry, find yourself in that same position. That when you embrace Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, you, you thought that everything was going to be rosy from that day forward. You didn't understand that the Christian life is a hard life. And perhaps you're right on the edge of looking for an exit ramp, a way out. Perhaps just to back it off a little bit, to perhaps take the pressure off. Charles Swindoll describes the first audience as this. Hebrews is a letter to first century homeless people. Street people who have lost their homes, lost their possessions, lost their friends, lost their loved ones. And many may now even lose their own lives because of Jesus. All of them are facing intense persecution. They desperately needed a word of hope. And a second audience to whom he writes are those Hebrew non-believers. They're intellectually convinced that the prophecies and the portraits of the Old Testament are in fact fulfilled in Christ Jesus, but they are not converted and they're non-committal. They are those who would give intellectual assent to the fact that yes, it does seem like Jesus is this Messiah, but the price is too high to follow Him. As Pastor Brad showed us from chapter 10 last week, the greatest sin of man is the rejecting of Christ. Some of you are like that. As you're leaving this morning and someone said to you, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Do you believe in him? You would flippantly say, yeah, I believe that. But have you bowed the knee of your heart in humility to recognize you need a Savior? That you're a sinner who can't pay your own debt? And the answer is, well, the price for that perhaps, is too high. The greatest sin you can commit is to reject Christ. Chapter 10, verse 26, 27 said, if we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, after someone has explained to you what Christ has done for you, 
and that he has given you this offer free. All you have to do is just simply believe in him to receive it for yourself, the forgiveness of sins, the promise of life eternal, all that goes with it. If having received that knowledge, there no longer remains a sacrifice for your sins. Instead, there is a fearful expectation of judgment, the fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So if you're one of those who said, yeah, I, I intellectually agree with that, but you have given Christ the Heisman, the question you have to answer is, where are you going to go? Where are you going to go? Who's going to pay the penalty for your sin? Who's going to erase the debt of your offense against the holy God? You? You see, somebody has to die for your sin. Jesus already died for it, but if you're not willing to embrace his death for it, then you're going to have to die for it alone. And the third one are those who are, I would call them inquirers. They're, they're, they're Hebrew non-believers, not yet convinced, but continuing to weigh the message. It's also an exhortational sermon. Thirteen times as you're going through it, you'll circle the phrase, let us. In other words, there's this truth, and then there's this application. So, let us. We're supposed to do something with it. He, he wraps it up in chapter 13, verse 22 with this. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Yeah, he's got 303 verses. He calls that brief. Probably the part that, you know, as I'm, I'm like, what, six or seven weeks from preaching my last official sermon here, probably the part that weighs heaviest on my heart are the five warnings that he includes in the book. In chapter 2, verse 1, he warns about drifting from God's Word. Now, drifting is not an intentional departure. It's just simply losing awareness or sensitivity. And then waking up to find out that the, the, the moorings to the, have let go and the, and the undercurrent has carried you away. In chapter 3, verse 7, he says, Be careful you don't begin doubting God's Word. Chapter 5, verse 11, he says, Take heed lest you are defecting from God's Word. Our one this morning is chapter 10, verse 26. Don't despise God's Word. Or the end of the story is chapter 12, verse 18. The danger of denying God's Word. I like what A.W. Tozer said. Nothing but a whole Bible can make a whole Christian. And that's probably my biggest burden after 29 years for our church is that we would we would have drifted from our confidence in the full sufficiency of this book and that one day we would awaken to realize that because of that we have denied the word I don't think it can happen in the reign of Josiah, they found the Word of God in the house of God. It had been lost. Ron Brown, when he speaks, he, I love, love his illustration. If you're leaving the West Coast and you're headed to the East Coast, if you, you leave San Diego and you're going to go to Miami, if you're only one degree off, when you get to your destination, you'll find yourself in Cuba. 
My aunt and uncle were missionaries in Cuba when Castro took over. You don't want to be there. Our church doesn't want to be there. Be careful. It starts with drifting, doubting, defecting, despising, and ultimately denying. Today we come to the context of the fourth of those. Notice verse, the paragraph that precedes it. Pastor Brad handled it last week. It's bookended in this way, 26 and 31. If we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But then he opens up his, but recall the former days. Or he wraps it in verse 39. But we are not like those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are those who have faith in preserve their souls. The point is, is like, like a loving parent, he's going to talk about this in Hebrews chapter 12 in a couple of weeks, but a loving parent loves the child enough to see that when they have deviated from the right path, they care enough to step in, to call them back, to hinder them from continuing to follow a road of destruction. They, they discipline their child. As it says in Hebrews chapter 12, don't, don't despise the discipline of the Lord because like a father who disciplines the son that he loves, he delights in, so the heavenly father will discipline us. So what he's done is, again, now for the fourth time, he has given a word of warning, but then he, then he, he kind of looks and he, he sees the quivering of the lip in the reproof. And he, and he throws his arms around the child and he reminds him, but, but I, I believe bigger things for you. He assures them. We're talking here about faith. And it's, it's kind of like this text is, is like you're, you're going to get a guided tour through the Museum of the Hall of Faith and the curator has met you in the entry and is just kind of preparing you for what is coming. So the, you see, faith is the, is the operative word of the Christian life. It is on the basis of faith that we enter in, it's on the basis of faith that we continue. So, he says, first of all, faith looks back, verse 32. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. He reminds them, think back to the early days when God, by His grace, by the work of the Spirit, delivered you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His Son, the light of truth. Remember those days when you endured. You were afflicted. There was a price to be paid for your decision, but you didn't care. You had found Jesus, and when you had Jesus, you had everything that you needed. Think back to those days. He says, in those days, you were exposed. You suffered reproach and affliction and Reproach is probably harder to endure than affliction. Affliction injures us like a, you know, sticks and stones might break my bones. Well, they do, but the bruises from the beatings and the scars will often heal. But reproach is to be slandered. It's to have somebody steal your reputation by accusations or things said about you. We always say that if, if, you're, if somebody strikes you, that, that bruise can go away. But if somebody says something mean about you or to you, the wound of that, that's why Proverbs talks so much about the tongue, the reproach. They, they intentionally 
undermined. They, they said false things about you. They lied about you. They, they, they destroyed your reputation about those that had trusted you before. And you endured that. Proverbs 22 and Ecclesiastes 7 says, A good name is to be more treasured than the most choice of gems and jewels and gold. A good name. I'll probably find myself being more sentimental over the next six weeks than you can endure. But moving my library home and clearing out my file drawers, I, I stumbled on to papers from many years ago. Reading the notes reminded me of a time when our elder team found themselves in a great sense of conflict. One of our elders had accused one of our other elders of becoming a liberal and uh, abandoning solid truth and I mean, I was rereading the notes, and it was like, wow. I'll never forget. It went on for weeks. And just trying to mediate, trying to work through it. I'll never forget. The, the, the climactic night came over in what we now have as a music room, and uh, we put it on the table. We prayed about it, and God restored. I mean, he, he, he reconciled relationships. He restored and the reality that it was not a false doctrine and he hadn't deviated from biblical truth was declared. But I'll never forget, we came out of the room and we're walking down the hall and he stopped me and he said, Tom, I so appreciate the work that you did to bring us to this point. But where do I go to pick up my reputation? That's what reproach is. And they were willing to lose it for the sake of the gospel. They, they were devoted to each other. If somebody was being slandered or afflicted, they came alongside. He said, you became partners with those who were treated. On top of that, you had compassion on those in prison. They, they, literally, when they would throw them in prison, the only way that they could survive is that somebody that was their friend or family would bring them food and shelter, clothing. All, everything that a prisoner needed had to be provided by someone else. And you were willing to identify with those in prison to do that. And, and I, I don't want to denigrate prison ministries or anything like that. I, I fully believe in them and rejoice in them. But... These, these are not people that are in for crimes they've committed. These are people who are in because they, their only crime was they followed Jesus. And because of following Jesus, they were thrown into prison, and these people didn't forget about them. They were willing to go on top of that. Your possessions were plundered. You lost all of the things that we consider to be essential to this life. And I, could, I read that, and I couldn't help but think, most of you aren't old enough to remember Corey Ten Boom. But Corrie Ten Boom, I love her statement. I have learned to hold loosely the things I consider dear. Lest God in His wisdom should choose to take them from me. It hurts to pry my fingers loose. You accepted the loss of what most people think they could not live without because you were convinced that God had promised you a better possession, an abiding possession, an inheritance where moths could not corrupt it, rust could not destroy it, and thieves couldn't steal it. Your faith looks back. When, you, when you're wavering, 
and wondering, should I, should I just walk away? Should I throw it in? Look back to the early days and say, well, what was it about Jesus that made me willing to endure what I endured? But faith also looks forward. Verse 35, 36, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need for endurance. My text says, or yours may say patience, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what He has promised. Patient endurance. It's perseverance that is evidence of saving faith. It's the perseverance of the saints is not that God saves me because I didn't throw in the towel. But it is I I don't throw in the towel because God has saved me. The evidence of true faith is that when the pressure is on to renounce it and deny it, I refuse to do so. That marks us as a true follower. He said you need that. He also said you need active obedience when you have done the will of God. What is the will of God? What well, the first will of God? What is the work that He requires us to do? He says in John chapter 6 is to believe in He whom He has sent, and that's me. So first of all, it's the faith to believe that Jesus is God's ultimate, full, best provision for all that I need, and it's ultimate realization that you will one day receive what is promised. That God never commits Himself to anything that He does not fulfill. So faith looks back, remembers what it was like in the early days. Faith looks forward, anticipating what God has in store in the future but faith also looks up. Notice verse 37. Yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. He says in Philippians chapter 3, we are, we are those who are standing on our tiptoes looking for the soon return of Jesus. He has already said over and over in Hebrews that the one who came once will appear a second time. We are solidified in the midst of our trial, in our endurance, knowing that He has promised to come and He will not delay. The problem with this is it's been 2,000 years. As He says in First Peter, they, the mockers say, so where is this promise of His coming? But Peter goes on to remind us that a day in the presence of God is like a 1,000 years and a 1,000 years like a day. So the reality is he only made this promise two days ago. When I was leaving home this morning, the sun was just cresting over the eastern horizon, and I thought to myself, what a great day for a trumpet. And then we go, we were a colony of heaven living together here on earth, waiting to go home. But faith also looks inward. It examines the heart. My righteous one will live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. The righteous one continues to expect that because of God's graces in the past, God's grace will be provided in the future. John Piper wrote a book called Future Grace. On the basis of God's performance in my life, over the seasons of time I have known him, I can be confident that he will continue to be faithful in the days I do not yet see. Those who shrink back will be destroyed. You think in terms of Demas, who has loved this present world and has abandoned Paul, but mostly you think of Judas, 
who was so effective that he faked out all the other disciples. They thought he was the real deal. And he kissed Jesus off. He was called the son of perdition. Those who have faith, we are those who preserve the soul because we endure. So he raises the question. The question is this. Will you go back after all that you went through in the early days? Was that all for nothing? And then the second question is, are you willing to lose it all? What will you lose by going back? But he cites Habakkuk chapter 2. The story of Habakkuk chapter 2, and I had a set of notes yesterday that would take us there, but the clock didn't allow for that. Habakkuk is a prophet of which we have no biography whatsoever. But he is looking at the world around him, the nation of Israel. And it has become a cesspool of immorality and a den of idolatry. And he cries out to God and he says, God, look at your world. Look at your people. When are you going to do something about that? And God said, well, I want you to look around. I'm already doing something about that. Over in the Persian Gulf, I'm strengthening one Nebuchadnezzar. And he is going to come and he is going to purge and purify my people. And Habakkuk goes, whoa, time out. How, how can you use a people that are even more godless than we are against your own people? And so God says, don't worry about it. After I've used them to discipline and correct my people, then I will make them pay. I'll, I'll punish them as well. And Habakkuk goes, I'm just going to sit up here and watch. I'm just, I'm just going to watch God unfold. In that, he says, behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not right within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. The first time this statement is made, it is, it is a, a separation. Faith is a separation. It identifies those who truly follow Christ and those who don't. In the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verse 11, the Apostle Paul writes it. He says, now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. In the first use, it is separation. In the second one, it's sanctification. We, we, we are molded and shaped into the image of Christ by ongoing faith, trust in Him. In Romans, chapter 1, verse 17, it is saving faith. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So it is written that the righteous will live by faith. So it is a saving faith, but here it is a sustaining faith. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 37, 38. Yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith. And you ask the question, what does that look like? I bit off way more than we can chew next week. We're going to do the entire chapter 11 next week. I'm going to suggest to Troy that maybe, maybe he would just have you sing one song and give me the whole hour. I don't, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to win that argument, but I'm going to give it a shot. What does it mean to walk by faith? Faith understands that behind everything visible is the invisible hand of God. The hiddenness of God. A.W. Pink put it this way. It is, it is by our faith being drawn out unto things above 
that we receive the needed strength which causes us to look away from the discouraging and distracting scene around us. Faith makes us resign ourselves and our affairs to Christ's disposing, cheerfully treading the path of duty and patiently waiting that issue which He will give. Faith is assured that our head knows far better than we do what is good and what is best. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perished, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of the Lord Jesus. Or as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets that were before you. Or Dr. Michael Kruger puts it this way, how would our lives look different if we thought about Jesus not just as our Savior from sin, but also as the sovereign King of everything? How would focusing on Jesus as the ruler of all and the master of the universe change our lives? For sure we would be more prayerful. We'd be less anxious because we would entrust all our cares to Christ and we'd be less despairing about the advance of the gospel because we would remember that the great God who holds the whole universe is the one leading his army forward. Jesus is not going to lose. The world is his inheritance, and he will prevail in the end, however dark things get. Jesus is king. Jesus is our king. living in this text for the last two weeks I couldn't help but think back to one of our elders Dimitri had told me the story of his grandfather in Russia in 1950 he was arrested and taken to a train station in a nearby town then after being loaded into train cars he realized that there were many brothers and other leaders of the community in general after the train took off, a representative of the KGB walked down the aisle and read off sentences. His was 15 years incarceration, plus 25 years of not being able to return to his homeland on top of that. The charge was enemy of the state on religious grounds. There was no trial. He was the choir director. Later, during the entire duration of the trip, they offered money and a return ticket to those who were willing to renounce their religious beliefs by signing a document. He watched many who were called brothers get off the train. 
He and a few other brothers did not. He served five years in Kalima, hard forced labor camps. I looked it up on Wikipedia. It's described as a special place in hell. They were doing deforestation, harvesting lumber. Conditions were harsh. So much so that, according to the encyclopedia, it says that their basic mantra was, we need to get all we can out of a prisoner in the first three months. After that, they are of no use to us. But after five years, the Lord had mercy, and he was released and allowed to return home because there was amnesty due to Stalin's death. He came home to four boys who had not seen their father or did not know him because they were all little when he was arrested. Dimitri said, my grandmother suffered as well. She was also forced to work for free in the local cooperative, then come home and run a small garden along with a few animals to feed herself and the boys. And yet throughout the whole entire time, they never gave up their faith because God is an awesome God. We are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. The question that you have to answer is the theme of our study of Hebrews. Is he enough? Receive this benediction. And now to him, who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen? Amen.